Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my beloved Carrie Plitt, ready to talk to you about some exciting things. But first, Carrie, hi, how are you doing? Hi, Octavia. I'm doing pretty well. My parents are visiting right now, and hey. it's really nice. So, the yeah, Plitts they, are in town. Yes, I set them out for a coffee while we record, and... Um, <laughs> And we're, yeah, they're staying with me in my home, which is a new experience. And I'm, I'm really enjoying their company. So that's how I am. How are you? Well, today we are recording on the spring solstice. So I am basically beside myself with excitement that this means we are moving into the light ever more every day. Also, there are some extremely energetic men hanging from trees outside my window with chainsaws doing some tree surgery. So if any weird sounds picked up on the microphone, that's why. And I'm sorry, everyone. It's a very like anti-spring activity, just chopping things down. Yeah, hugely aggressive, but that's how you have to be. for, For letting them grow again, you know? Exactly. That's it. You cut right back and then a new world emerges supposedly yeah Yeah. anyway (laughs) lots of activity around here (laughs) okay well before we get into our theme today let's get business out of the way if you like you can support us on patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash lit friction you will also get access to an extra mini soda each month there are now 26 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes you can. And in our latest Patreon mini-sode, we ended up talking about endings in literature. We gave you all a fright on Instagram by posting a, a picture that said, that's all folks. It's not the end of the podcast, at least not yet. It is just a podcast about endings. And we yes. have fun recording it. So if you want to <laughs> listen to that, you can find it on the Patreon. And it was fun to see how sad you all were about the podcast ending. It was fun and it made us feel good. And I'm sorry that we were sadistic by mistake. <laughs> Another very exciting business announcement. As you probably know, Octavia's book is coming out this June. And bookshop.org wanted to offer our listeners a special deal. Octavia, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about it? I can. Um, It's a really, really wonderful thing. And I am so happy to announce that this Ragged Grace has been selected as the bookshop.org book of the month for June, which is insane. And um, you are wonderful listeners at the moment. If you pre-order, can get free shipping and you can get 10% off with the code RAGGED10, which is capital R, A-G-G-E-D, and the number's one zero. And all sales from bookshop.org support independent bookshops. There is a link to pre-order and more details on that in the show notes. So head there if you're interested. Yes pre-order the book. I can say that. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Thank you. It's very good. But now back to Minisode 38. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format of these minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up. Anything else. And then <laughs> never thought about that. That little line. It's like anything. It could it be anything. It could be anything. <laughs> And then after that, we'll be recommending some cultural things that we have enjoyed lately that are not books. That's right. And today our theme is kind of judgy. 
Everyone says you should not judge a book by its cover, but obviously everyone judges a book by its cover all the goddamn time. So <laughs> we're going to get into that. And we partly covered, sorry, terrible pun, this topic. It was actually completely unintentional. In our rediscovery episode for Picador, where we spoke to Jamaica Kincaid, and we also spoke to cover designer Stu Wilson. But we wanted to come back to it because we had so much more to say and we haven't really been able to stop thinking about it since. So, Carrie... Let's start really simple. What does a good cover do? And I guess, therefore, what does a bad cover do? Mm, Good question, Octavia. Well, I think a good cover can be so many different things, right? And so I was thinking about what do I want a good cover to do? And for me, first and foremost, a good cover is something that is interesting to look at. So it's something that feels like an object that I want to keep my eye on and that I want to keep looking at. And it doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be gross. It can be mysterious. It can be simple, but I want it to be eye-catching. And I I feel like there's nothing worse than a cover that makes a book just blend into all the other books. And I think about this a lot because obviously for the authors I represent, we're constantly being shown covers by publishers and them saying, what do you think of this? And that's almost the worst thing is if something is just not going to stand out. And then on top of that, I think that a good cover also tells me something truthful about what the book is. And I want to be careful with this because I don't think a cover has to scream, I am this kind of genre or I am this kind of book. And I think the publishing industry too often tries to replicate covers that have been successful already or tries to indicate too much what a book is from its cover. And that leads to a lot of really unimaginative covers and like really awful copycat covers. But I think it can be misleading if a cover looks like a book will be one kind of thing and then be completely different. And I think that's a bad cover. So mm, that wasn't the best answer, but that's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm really with you on that. And I agree with everything you just said. But I also think there's a totally different approach, which you can see the most clearly in the tradition of French publishing, right? Which is not always, but often very different. So it's Mm. not all publishing houses, but I'm thinking very much of the Edition Minuit and Gallimard, who don't give books individual covers at all. They have a house style and every book they publish has the same house style. So they're these very minimalist designs. They're only ever paperbacks, I think. They're super, super simple. The same template each time, which is in Edition Minuit, for example, it's a, a white soft cover with a navy blue border around the edge. The book's title is in navy in large, quite sort of elegant text. The author's name slightly smaller, often in black text. And then the beautiful little Minuit logo, which is an M with a star attached beneath it. They are incredibly chic. And the message seems to be basically, we are a brilliant publisher. We only publish brilliant stuff. You trust us. So you will read whatever (laughs) we offer you. You don't need to know what kind of book it is. We're just going to pick it up because we say it's good, you know, which is such a different attitude, right? Yeah. Although I don't know if that is opposed to what I was saying, which is like, they're still really eye-catching, aren't they? They're really eye-catching, but they don't tell you anything about the book. So that's where it's very different. They don't tell you what kind of book it's going to be at all. You just know it's going to be an Edition Minuit kind of book. So it's very much more about the publisher than the contents of the individual book. 
And, you know, over here, Fitzcarraldo are the only publisher I can think of who are doing the same sort of thing. And I think we're very much inspired by that French way. And obviously these kind of covers, they save publishers enormous amounts of money. They're extremely cheap to produce. <laughs> you don't have to hire a designer. And I think they emphasize the idea of a publisher having both a visual aesthetic and a literary aesthetic. And I think that's interesting. I think it's a very interesting question. I also think it's interesting because what then happens here is one book gets published with, you know, quite, if you're lucky, an individualized cover for the author. And then every other book they publish, they'll try and carry that visual language over. And that's nice. That's like a nice thing to do. So, you know, I think here of Deborah Levy's Living Autobiographies and her, her new novel, the cover fits that visual language. So you get this kind of stable of books by a single author that all speak to one another in how they look. And similarly with like Rachel Cusk's books, when they were reprinted, they were reprinted with this visual style that carried over. So they they feel like a family with one another. And the same yeah. with, I'm thinking of Chris Krause's books at Serpent's Tale again, when they've republished them, they've published them with these really vibrant covers. And I, th I like that as an idea, but that again is very much putting the emphasis on the author rather than on the publisher. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm, I'm just thinking about the fact that I don't think that imprints and brands here, people don't recognize them as much. And maybe that's putting the cart before the horse. But I think one of the reasons why a lot of the books have individualized covers for the books themselves is, you know, as a as a general reader, it's not as though like the names like Scepter or Picador or anything meant anything to me. I, d I wasn't necessarily going to those imprints for a certain kind of book. And so if the book was branded by the publisher, I don't know, that wouldn't have done much more for me, if that makes sense. I think one of the only brands that has recognition here in the UK is Penguin. Yeah, but that's also because Penguin has always had a unity in their covers, right? So it's like these things are related to one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wonder which came first, is like have the covers diverged from the imprints partially because it's not the way that readers here think about those things? Or is it because the publishers haven't put enough emphasis on the unity of the kind of book that they're putting out into the world? Or they weren't trying for unity in the first place and they're yeah. doing a more diverse amount of things and therefore they give them each their own language. Like I yeah. think maybe the intention is just totally different. Also here, you know, hardbacks are 17 pounds. So if you're going to sell a book for 17 pounds, you better make it a really fabulous object. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, although it wasn't always that way. Um, no, but that's what I mean, right? The change in emphasis, I think, has come in the last few years, or at least I feel like I've seen that as a reader. Mm, although you you look back in the like in the eighties and the sixties and seventies, and there are those wonderful covers of of old classic books. Although those tended to be the paperbacks. That's so what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I feel like the emphasis on the object being like worth it has shifted. Yeah, in very much ways. so. And also in kind of changes in conventions in what's possible in printing. Like now, you know, there's embossing, there's spot gloss, there's all this kind of stuff that yeah. makes books into these incredibly tactile objects. I think that also it's it's a reaction to ebooks coming in and publishers feeling that they had to give the physical object, you know, people still wanted to buy books because they wanted to own it. Right. But maybe there was more emphasis on making it a beautiful physical object so that it would be, you know, an object as much as a book because you could just buy an ebook if if it was just to read it. Mm, that's interesting. Well, people obviously, as I said in the trail, like always say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Do you think that's 
A, even possible and B, like worth aiming for anyway? Well, I don't think it's possible. And, you know, I, when I was thinking about an answer to this question, I was thinking, well, maybe if it was like those French publishers <laughs> that you're talking about, but then also, but you're judging that book still because you're thinking, oh, it's a Gallimard book. Right. You know, what that will mean something, as you say. And I'm always judging a book a little bit by its cover, not least because often the cover is there to tell you something. Of course it is. The cover is how the publisher is saying, you know, this is what I think this book is. So I'm going to read into that. Maybe the, the vision that the publisher has is different from the author, but it's still something. It's still like a piece of information. But yeah, as I, you know, as I was saying, working as an agent, I'm very aware of the processes that go into making, like making a book cover and authors do have a say over their covers, but they're not designing them and they can only offer so much guidance in terms of what they look like. It's not as though an author is giving like very detailed notes about what their cover has to look like most of the time. It's more that they're presented with a design and they can say whether they like it or not, and maybe give some feedback on it. Maybe they have a few options to choose between. And, you know, a lot of authors are happy with their covers, some less so. And we try to get to a place where everyone's happy, but that doesn't always happen. So what I should say is that I try not to judge a book by its cover too much, but I do judge a publisher if I really (laughs) (laughs) the cover. Um, And as a side note, one of the things I really love is looking at different designs from different countries of, of yeah books, because it's so fascinating the different interpretations that people have between America and the UK but also just internationally you know when we sell a book in a lot of different countries seeing the foreign editions that come in is so exciting yeah absolutely and it can make a huge difference I think I mean we're going to get into that a little bit later but I think I was thinking about this. The only time I don't really judge a book by its cover is when someone presses a book into my hands in recommendation, because that's what I'm interested in by that point, especially if it's someone who whose reading tastes I know align with mine. If you told me to read a book, I'd read it regardless of what I thought of the cover. Some friends, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Although I might see the cover and be like, ugh. Why is Octavia giving me a book called Hatred of Capitalism? I don't want to read this, (laughs) but I will. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I think it's impossible for the cover not to make an impression. And then also the other experience you can have is you finish reading a book and then you look at the cover again and you're like, that was an odd choice. Now I've read it. (laughs) But I think the whole thing about covers for different markets is totally, totally fascinating. And actually, especially as sometimes they, they don't even look that different. Like, I think sometimes I've seen books that are published in the UK and the US that they're not translated. And the US cover is like different by like two degrees from the UK cover. And you just think, Mm. what's the point? Like, I don't get it. But when they are very different, it gives you a really, really interesting insight into what a particular nation's market thinks that its readers are going to expect from writing from a particular other country, right? Like, I always think about the years where every single translated book that came out of Denmark or Norway had a dark and moody cover with like a silhouetted tree or a a window open in a distant cabin or something. And they did that whether or not it was noir, (laughs) whether or not it was about anything spooky and dark, you know, because it was obviously a decision made by marketing departments that that was the only way to get English language readers to read these stories. Whereas Mm. now I've noticed that doesn't seem so prevalent. And There are books coming out of Scandinavia that are allowed to be much more complex and different and not so stereotypical, which I think is great. 
I mean, also this isn't books, but it is relevant. I promise. I read a really, really funny article the other day about how like, especially commercial American films, when they are released in France, their titles are translated to be totally different titles. And I cannot tell you, my sides nearly split laughing. So Home Alone was called in French, <laughs> Mum, I missed the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and Home Alone 2 became, Mum, I missed the plane again. And this time I am lost in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and also basically a lot of those like, kind of like low-grade American rom-coms get an even more hilarious treatment so I don't know if you I haven't seen these films but I remember there was a a movie called No Strings Attached and in French they just called it Sex Friends (laughs) and they called Step Up Sexy Dance like they just put the word sex in it basically (laughs) I love it just put more sex in it I mean what because those things are about sex well exactly right amazing so have you ever been actually like put off a book by its cover or if you can't think of an example do you have any major pet peeves basically about Mm. book cover design when I really have loved a book that I've read I like to own them and it might be that I read like a proof or something like that so I will often buy them but I've definitely been put off from buying the book if I don't like the cover I've, I've thought like it's not worth me owning this copy of the book and hoping it will get rejected at some point. Pet peeves is a good question. And as I mentioned before, publishing really gets trapped in cycles of imitation. And I, this is true for stories and genres, but it's also really true for covers. And I don't ever love a cover where someone has clearly looked at a successful version of, you know, a Greek myth retelling, for instance, oh and tried to, I hate them. <laughs> There's so many of them. Stop. <laughs> stop with the myth retellings and try to to like replicate that. And you go into bookshops now and there are just tables of Greek myth retellings and they're all blue and they all have Greek looking (laughs) writing on them. And they all have some kind of like mosaic or woman on the front. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it, Octavia. I'm sure some of those books are amazing. So I don't want to diss all of them in one fell swoop but no it's it, not about dissing yeah. the books it's about dissing the packaging right exactly yes and the, another pet peeve of mine of something that's happened recently is that there's been this trend in UK covers for a few years of reclining young women doing things like banging their heads against doors or smashing their heads into cakes <laughs> oh my god yes <laughs> and it's so derivative and I think it does put me off a bit because I'm like I don't I'm interested in anyone's life, but it's so on the nose that it's a little bit upsetting to me. Yeah. And also there's something to me that's always felt a little bit sexist about it, actually. You know, like woman face down on piece of furniture. Don't take their faces away. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Also, there is conventional wisdom, which I think is changing a little bit, that you shouldn't put photographic faces on the covers of books. So I think that's one of the reasons why people are always turned away. But I think, well, maybe with fiction, right? But I also think that's really dumb because actually people, there's like a lot of research, especially in the music industry. A friend of mine used to work for a major label and they have like absolutely rock solid concrete evidence that human beings are drawn towards things with faces on. And they're much more likely to pick up an album cover with faces on, for example. Yeah, that is very interesting. There's also all of this wisdom about like colors of books and whether they sell or not. Like people think that yellow books sell better and blue books don't sell as well. Yeah, which I mean, all of this stuff is like, I'm sure some of it is incredibly helpful, useful marketing research, but also people don't see color the same way. 
even if that is kind of true, if a book is great and everyone's excited about the book, they're not going to be like, oh, this is blue. Can't, can't <laughs> possibly take it. Terrible. But anyway, that annoys me. White, smart thinking book with like a pencil on the cover that just feels so overdone. After Sweet Francaise was so popular, there were all of these books with like colorized black and white photographs of like people kissing on the front. And yeah. that just became so dull and repetitive. And then finally, another pet peeve, and and this is more about the materials than the actual cover, but I just don't love when books feel like they're about to fall apart and are cheaply made and the cover isn't nice. Just makes me not want to own it and not want to touch it. And, you know, I think you can environmentally make a very nice book that still feels like a nice object and one that, you know, is is laid out properly and printed nicely and has a really rich cover. And sometimes I pick up books and I'm just like, ugh, this has been done so cheaply and I don't want to own a copy of it. It's going to fall apart. How about you? Well, my personal pet peeve is currently sexy fruit on a cover. (laughs) Yes, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) I have seen too many bursting pomegranates or juicy grapefruits with like a finger sinking into them or like a hand crushing with the juice coming out. And I think those images when, when they were first used were fabulous because they are hugely evocative. They're really relatable, whatever they're, they, they make you, your mouth water. They're really interesting, but not anymore. And I just don't understand why publishers get so fucking unimaginative because it is derivative and it's insulting to the authors because Mm. it means that as an author, your work is immediately placed in conversation with any other book that has a similar cover. And I don't think that's fair to the uniqueness of the work, inevitably. So, you know, that's very boring. I also think that publishers get extremely unimaginative about color palettes specifically. And I feel like there's often a very particular color register that's used for works by African writers, for example. And then there's a different one for books by writers from the Middle East that evokes kind of sand and, you know, pale blue skies, and it all falls into these old traps of Orientalism. And I think it is one of the ways that racism is constantly active in the industry. And when the art departments and the publishers and the marketing departments are all just white people, they don't notice. And I have a few friends who are writers, who are writers of color, and and they hate when their work is packaged that way. They find it, it's a microaggression or a macroaggression, frankly. So I think that is something that the industry is way too slow on the uptake about, and they need to to get, get with that program. And I totally get that publishers are businesses and they're always thinking about what sells and they need products to speak a particular language so that they will sell and they will find the right audience. They will sell more and more. And I I do get that. And I get that marketing departments have a really hard job and they have to use data and they have to think in this way. But it just sometimes feels like there's a lag in what they're really putting out there, especially with the big commercial publishers. I think independent publishers have a very different approach to this stuff. I mean, my experience of being published by an indie, I had a lot of input into the cover and it was really wonderful. And I know that they're very good at doing that with authors. And I also know authors who publish with massive commercial publishers who are given basically no say at all in the covers. And I think the trouble is now, because there are algorithms at our fingertips all the time, there are a lot of books that are published with covers that just look like they were designed by an algorithm. And I find that depressing, basically. Like, I I wish that more would break the mold and take a bit of a risk. And that is where indie publishers are really doing the most and doing the best, I think. Yes, I I would agree with that to some extent. I think even within the big publishers, there are some really amazing people 
working in the design department. And, oh God, without doubt. Um, yeah. I'm and, obviously making gross generalizations to yeah. make a point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just speaking from an industry perspective. I, th- I think there are some really great designers and, and I do agree that indies can push the boundaries. And, you know, in the UK, I love Faber's covers, for instance, and I think they're often doing really interesting things. And there are so many pressures. I mean, like Waterstones... I don't know if you know this, if Waterstones don't like a book cover, they can say to publishers, we don't like this. Can you change yeah, it? Yeah, no, I do know that. And it's absolutely um, wild. Yeah. So it's like, there's so much going into this. It's so very rarely just one designer coming up with something brilliant. And I think that that like design by committee often does water down the greatness of a product. And and then the market forces, you know, or you get to a perfect cover with an author and a marketing department and everyone's happy. And then Waterstones goes, no, we're not selling yellow books at the moment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. But basically, I think why book covers are interesting, because they are, they are kind of the site of conflict between the parts of the publishing industry that are about art and the parts of the publishing industry that are about commerce. And it is an industry that wrestles with that conflict constantly and struggles to identify itself as an industry that is a business as much as it is about art. And I think that's very interesting. I agree. Oh, that's a relief. (laughs) Do you have any like favorite covers that you want to shout out or if not favorites, then I guess memorable ones? Yeah, favorites is tough. And I like, I wish I had more time just to literally go through all of the books on my bookshelf and see which ones I like and think about it because I do love looking at covers. I love going into the bookshop and just looking at covers. But one of the things I've noticed that I really love is when covers use artwork as part of their design. So like, especially paintings, I just always love that. And maybe it's the art history major in me, but I'm thinking particularly of my Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshfag, oh, yeah. um, which was designed by Darren Hager. And it used this painting by David, but then these like neon pink title and author name and that juxtaposition was so evocative. And now, unfortunately, I think a lot has kind of been done again and again, but it feels like that was one of the first book covers to do that. And it was really exciting when I yeah. saw it. Yeah, I felt the same way about that cover. And more recently, I loved the cover of Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, which has a, a beautiful kind of close-up or detail from a painting by Bruegel in the UK. And that was that was Faber. I couldn't find the name of the designer, so I apologize to this designer. But I was also thinking of the Goldfinch. Mm, which that's a great cover. Beautiful Dutch painting of the Goldfinch, and there's a torn page coming off. So again, you know, that painting is so essential to the book, but the book is almost introducing you to the painting, but also the layers of the story that will involve the painting. So yeah, maybe I just love the Dutch masters. I don't know. But But yeah, I love those. Just quickly, a few others. There's there's a very famous designer in the US named Chip Kidd who did a lot of really iconic covers, especially in the 90s. And he did the cover for Jurassic Park. It was everywhere, I remember, as a kid in America of this t-rex skeleton and uh, (laughs) so good it's so good i would encourage people to look it up but i think that's a great example of just one image doing so much work and and kind of leading you into the book and and then another one that came to mind i haven't even read the book but a, a cover that really captivated me 
was the American cover of Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. Oh, yes. Yes. And it's like an old magazine illustration of a woman's hands holding some pieces of raw beef in foil. And it is so unsettling and so evocative. And it just feels perfect. And it made, it actually made me want to read the book, although I didn't. So how much did it make me? (laughs) I remember seeing that cover and being like, Ooh, that's really interesting. That's really exciting. I wonder what that story is about. How about you? What do you have any favorites? I do. I mean, it won't surprise you to know that I feel very strongly about these things. Um, (laughs) There is an edition of a book by Simone de Beauvoir called The Woman Destroyed, which was published by Pantheon in 1987, which I think is a perfect perfect cover. It is the most incredible hot magenta pink with a massive pair of bright green lips holding a cigarette in an illustration in the center. And then above it is the title and below it is de Beauvoir's name. And they're printed in block capital letters, but looking like they've been sort of hand scrawled. And it is so dynamic and punk and pop and so not how you're used to seeing Simone de Beauvoir's work packaged which I love, is very irreverent. And she was an extremely irreverent person, so it feels absolutely right. And also it feels very unpretentious. Like I think sometimes the way that de Beauvoir's work is packaged can be very sort of self-conscious. And I love the fact that this was absolutely not that at all. But I also think it's a really good moment actually to emphasize how enormously subjective all of this, of course, is. Because I literally saw someone on, t- on Twitter the other day complaining about how much they hated this cover. <laughs> and wow. All the reasons I loved it were all the reasons they hated it. And it made me chuckle inwardly because I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, of course. And of course the covers that I find irritating are really meaningful and like or pleasurable to other people. And that's how it should be because that's how art is and that's how visual culture works. And that's why a that's lot of why those kind of- books work, Octavia, too. Oh, it's all subjective. Yeah. It's art. <laughs> exactly. Criticism <laughs> is meaningless. No, I don't mean that. I don't believe that. But yeah, I just think it's interesting. It's funny. And also like, this is what I mean about how different people have very different relationships to color. I love really strong colors. I love being surrounded by them. My house is full of very strong colors. And and I think that's partly down to how I receive them genuinely, like in my eyes. Like one of the fascinating things about color is you never know how other people see it, right? Mm. You cannot share that experience, but you have, you know, people have different sensibilities. And actually a lot of the covers that I'm really drawn to have very strong Colors, apart from the sort of Edition Minuit one, ones, which I absolutely adore. And I think Fitzcarraldo's covers are beautiful. Mm. Um, but a lot of the ones I realized when I listed this, this list of my favorites, I was like, oh, they're all really bright colors. Like the next ones on my list were I Love Dick by Chris Krause. Yeah. And then the other books that Serpent's Tale published after that, Torpor and Aliens and Anorexia, where they carried that visual language over. So Torpor is a, I Love Dick is a very bright green Torpor is a very bright orange. Aliens and Anorexia is a really, really vibrant blue. And I love it. And the the graphics, they use great fonts and the graphic language of the titles is really fantastic. And the titles are very strong. I also, one that I recently really liked was Pure Color by Sheila Hetty, the cover yeah, of that. I thought it was so stylish. I thought about that. I mean, just because it was, it was playing on the idea of pure color with that beautiful green. On, yeah. on the cover, but it's also sort of mysterious and strange and unexpected. Yeah, exactly. And as is the book. And I also think Nell Zink's books, I, I think that their covers tend to be fantastic. I don't always love them, but they, I think, brilliantly capture the energy of her writing, which is very funny and subversive. And the covers tend to be extremely attention grabbing, quite weird 
the best one though I thought was the cover for nicotine which was designed to look like a packet of Marlboro Reds basically mm, I love and that it was cover yeah so good so good another one I loved was the covers for this one sky date by Leonie Ross which interestingly talking about US and UK covers they were quite different and they were both perfect. I couldn't tell you which one I thought was more perfect. They just, they both really brought to life the energy of Popisho, which is the imagined place where the story takes place. I didn't love the UK cover of that. Didn't you? No. I mean, it was very colorful, but it was sort of, I don't know, it wasn't striking enough for me. Oh, interesting. I didn't think that necessarily, but maybe there's been more that's come mm. since that's using that same language. What about any of the most incongruous covers that you've seen? The thing that comes to mind is I still do not love the original covers of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan Quartet. Oh my God, me which, neither. Yeah, there are all these pastel paintings of women and children in scenes of like daily life and at a wedding and kids with like sparklers or whatever. And the artist has given a very eloquent explanation of why she gave those books those covers, which has to do with subverting people's expectations about what domestic is and what a woman's story is. And I see all of that, but I th- I just think they're bad. I don't, I don't like the illustrations. I don't like looking at them. It doesn't, nothing about them says that they're subversive. So I think that sort of undercuts the point. And I, I was glad when they rejected them. Yeah, I totally agree. Genuinely, those covers put me off reading those books for a long time because they just look very sappy. Yeah. And kind of mimsy. They're like Renoir paintings, which I loathe. Um, <laughs> I forgot you hate Renoir. I hate Renoir desperately. He's a shit painter. He's an absolute shit painter. And it's a disgrace of our history that he's been given so much wall space in major galleries. That is another podcast. You can subscribe at my Substack if you <laughs> I'm joking. I don't have a Substack. But I, uh, I do recommend you follow the Instagram account, Renoir Sucks at Painting, if you want to know more. No, I was... You? I was very surprised at the actual kind of bite and spike of those books when I did come to read them because I just thought the covers were, yeah, totally incongruous. They're not nostalgic books and those are incredibly nostalgic covers, right? There is also this edition of Rachel Cusk's book about parenting, A Life's Work on Becoming a Mother, which is a notoriously starkly honest book about the massive transformation that is entering motherhood, right? With all the weight of its social expectations and this expectation of sacrifice and all this kind of stuff. And it was a book that caused a massive furore when it was published, because I don't think there had been such direct writing about some of the ambivalence around maternity before. And I came across an edition of it that had this jacket that I was like, what the hell are you playing at? It has a picture of a, a a massive picture of a white blue eyed baby's face hovering on the cover and kind of fading into the white background. So the face almost looks like this weird sort of balloon and it's hovering very kind of nostalgically above the title and everything's faded. Everything looks kind of fuzzy edged and the text fonts are kind of awful and old fashioned. I'm not going to say which publisher mm. it is because that would be too much shade, but it's stuck in my mind as such a misleading representation of what's written inside that book. Like it kind of makes it look like a parenting manual, you know?
Hello, we are back to talk to you about some of the stuff we've done lately that is not reading and that we want to tell you about. So Carrie, what is first up for you? Well, my first recommendation is an exhibition that is now over, so we can't (laughs) go to it. (laughs) Um, And it's for a painter that does not suck at painting called Cezanne. Oh, he does not suck. Yeah, I'll give you that. No, okay, good. And it was a retrospective at the Tate Modern. So I guess my recommendation is instead to go look at some paintings by Cezanne, either on the internet or in galleries. If you're in London, there are lots of museums that have Cezanne's that hopefully will be back there now that the exhibition is over. But anyway, I won't go too much into the exhibition, but it was this stunning collection of Cezanne paintings from many different locations, many of which hadn't been shown together ever. And I really love the way it put him into the context of his time, not just because everyone always thinks of him as this person who like inspired all the, all of these paintings after him. And that's kind of how he's often presented in galleries. But this was a show about, you know, Cezanne and, and his craft, how he was devoted to his craft, his family, his roots in the south of France, and also, you know, his his engagement with politics, which is something that isn't always part of the way that he's displayed. But of course, this must all start with the art. And oh my God, the art. I, I mean, Cezanne was an artist that I loved almost as soon as I saw his paintings. There's just something for me that's very visceral about the way that I feel when I see them. And I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it has something to do with the colors, speaking of colors, which are so vibrant and so evocative. And the shapes, he's always experimenting with shapes and he outlines everything in this really bold way. And I love how he can capture the essence and luminosity of like an apple with these thick, rough brushstrokes and like a circle. And yet somehow it is an apple. And, I, you know, what was cool about the exhibition as well is it put together paintings that that don't often sit next to each other. And you can see the way he returned to the same subjects over and over and over, like, you know, the statue in his studio or the mountain behind his house or those famous apples. So Cezanne, good at painting. Very good at painting. (laughs) Yeah, I missed that exhibition, but I love his work. Yeah, it it was really great. What's your first recommendation? Mine is a movie that I watched last night, and I am devastated that I missed it in the cinema, but that's how it goes. It's called Fire of Love, and oh my God, watch this film. So it's a documentary from last year about the lives of these two French volcanologists. And they were actually married to each other. Their names were Katia and Maurice Kraft. And the film is directed, written, and also produced by uh, Sarah Dosa. And it's basically a love story, but the primary love objects are volcanoes. (laughs) And then the secondary love story is that between these two people. And it kind of paints the story of just how remarkably down to chance love can be. It's kind of wild that these two people happen to be born in the same era, in the same place, They happen to meet each other and then spend their lives pursuing this really profoundly deep passion because actually the passion that these two people both have for volcanoes is extraordinary, right? It's remarkable. They devote their entire lives to studying them. They decide not to have children and instead to pursue this life of lava and ash and eruptions and risk. And they're scientists. Their aim is to document and research so that they can understand volcanic activity by getting 
as close as possible in every imaginable condition. And they're doing this from like the 70s onwards, basically. So at a time when their, you know, protective materials were less robust than they would be now. And one of the ways in which they document all of this is through film and photography. So Maurice makes these incredible films. And in this footage, he constantly is saying he's not a filmmaker. He's just documenting what he's seeing. And one of the theses put across by by the writer and the director is like, he, of course he's a filmmaker. He uses his camera in this extraordinary way to tell the story of the volcano and to render the mad reality of geological time, which we kind of can't understand. Like the human brain is too limited to understand geological time. And yet he makes it visible with his camera, which is remarkable. And then Katia, who takes still photography, incredible, exquisite images. And those are stitches together this archival footage that's been around, you know, for years from these two, these two scientists and artists. And she has Miranda July reading a voiceover, which involves readings from their various diaries and tells the story of their relationship, as well as the story of these different eruptions that they go and see. And it is just so beautiful. It's like awe-inspiring visuals, but also the way the story is told. It's just incredible, incredible. And it left me thinking about the power of deep, deep passion and how, Honestly, this is a very personal view. And no, I don't mean to be insulting to anyone who who does have faith in a God, but I find it fascinating that humans basically went and created sky fathers when we have these tangible and enormously powerful forces that live beneath our feet and we can see and touch and be burned by and killed by, you know? Like I I just I find that always so fascinating. And and I will never forget these images of these two tiny people in these mad silver spacesuits silhouetted against insane tsunamis of red lava. It's just extraordinary. So yeah, go watch it. It's online. Go watch it. I really want to see that. I loved your description of it. And you're so right. I mean, volcanoes are crazy. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> crazy. Fire coming out of the earth. Also, I have to say, I think the title is a little silly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't mind yeah. it, but I, I honestly didn't think about it. Um, it. It feels very unserious to me. It feels like it should be something else. I would never know that that was a documentary about volcanologists. I think that's kind of the point though, right? Like it's it's a very artfully put together documentary. Sometimes it feels basically, I think Wes Anderson must have seen footage of these two people and copied it for some of his films because they wear these little red hats. And like, you'll see if you watch it, the visual language, basically, I'm not a fan of Wes Anderson. I feel like he steals from other people a lot. So it feels like that that happened here. But I think the way that it's put together is, it's not straight documentary. It's definitely artistic. And it's, you know, Miranda July's involvement speaks to like a particular, slightly whimsical way of putting it across. But mm-hmm. I think it really works. I think it really, really works. So no, I didn't find the title... I honestly didn't really notice the title. I was just responding to the images, even of the poster. That was what drew me to it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really pay attention to the title. So full of hot takes today, Octavia Bright. Yeah. Renoir <laughs> sucks at painting. Wes Anderson <laughs> sucks. <laughs> I mean, again, I can I could go on and on about my feelings about Wes Anderson, but that's for another time. <laughs> what is your second recommendation? Uh, my second recommendation is very short. As Octavia mentioned, we're recording this on the first day of spring, and this is the time of year when you can buy daffodils and tulips from the supermarket for not very much money and put them in a vase at home and watch them bloom. And my recommendation is to do this. I have been doing this 
ever since it became available to me as an option this year. And I have been buying two bunches of daffodils every week and putting them in a vase and watching them flower over the course of three days and turn into these happy yellow balls of goodness. And it is really improving my life. So yes, flowers is my recommendation. Absolutely seconded. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? What's your next recommendation? Well, mine is also a painting, actually. It's a very specific painting. It's in the Courtauld in London. So if you are in London or passing through, I would say absolutely go and see it in the permanent collection. It's by Monet. It's called Antibes, which is the name of a place in the south of France. And oh my God, I hadn't seen it for years and years. I hadn't been to the permanent collection for years. And last weekend, I did an event at um, Women of the World Festival, which is in South Bank Centre. So I was near the Courtauld and John and I wanted to look at some nice things. So we decided to, to pop in and see it. And there, you know, there are a lot of paintings in that permanent collection that I love and that I have seen many times in my life. Um, there's a few really extraordinary manets, including the bar at the Folie Berger, which is an amazing yeah, painting. My favorite painting. Is it? I think yeah. I knew that actually. Yeah, yeah, incredible. But this time I truly only had eyes for one painting and it's one that I have seen before and and liked a lot, but it, this is the first time it had this significant an effect on me, which I thought was very interesting. And I walked into the room and it honestly was like it caught my eye across the crowd and beckoned me towards it. It's this really deceptively simple painting. It's of a tree at the water's edge and you look across the waves to some mountains in the distance, but it is just transporting and, and it worked on me like a time machine or something. It took me completely there. I was suddenly in the south of France. I was standing at the water's edge. I could feel the breeze. I could hear it rustling the leaves on the tree. And I had this really profound moment of being like, I've, I felt in that moment, like a person seeing impressionism for the first time. Like I felt like I was back then in the 19th century or wherever, and I'd never seen the world rendered in this way, which is just capturing light and texture. And it was so moving. I, yeah, it was moving and it was really, really, really transporting. I could almost sort of smell the salt on the air Mm. and everything. It was a really, really sensory enveloping experience. And it was a very gray and miserable day at the time in London. And it just let me slip through this portal. It was, I think, profoundly restorative, but I found myself standing in front of it for a good 10 minutes and just traveling (laughs) with it. So, you know, I guess it's a recommendation for that painting in particular, but also really just for the power of standing in front of a painting for a good long time and letting it do things to you, you know? I love that. What is it that Ben Lerner calls it in leaving the Atocha station? It's like having a profound experience with art or something like that. There's a great scene at the very beginning. It made me think of that while you were describing it. I've actually never read that book, but you should read it. I'll tell you to read it. (laughs) (laughs) See what the cover looks like. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's it for us, everyone. We're out of time. Thank you for listening as ever. And we will be back in your main feeds with a full show very soon. 